0: you're listening to lozano smith's podcast where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies welcome to another lozano smith podcast i'm your host sloan simmons a partner out of lozano smith's sacramento office today's topic title nine that's all you need two words and and uh known throughout the educational community, but maybe not known well enough. And that's what our two Title IX Impact Team members from Lozano-Smith and experts in this field are gonna talk with us about today. First, we have Stephanie White, Senior Counsel out of our Walnut Creek office. She's one of our co-practice group leaders for the community college district practice area, but also does tons of work in labor and employment, student, and and again, is a, a specialist and one of our experts on Title Nine, here with me in Sacramento is fellow partner, Michelle Cannon, a, a long and very uh, successful career. And I, I was looking at your bio again today, Michelle. I don't think there's one thing in ed law that at one point or another you haven't done. You bond, bond. Bond, bond work. work. Bond work. We can make that happen. <laughs> we can make that happen. Um, Michelle, uh, a lot of work in labor and employment, but also general board governance, student issues, litigation. And, and really, the whole gamut of employee issues and student issues, in particular, relevant today, Title IX. And, and again, uh, Stephanie and Michelle are two of our leads, if not the core of our Lozano-Smith Title IX impact team. Title IX is very broad. I've got questions all over the place, but I need to stop talking so you two can. Michelle, Title IX, what is it?
1: Well, it's funny that you say it's very broad because it is, but it's literally... A federal law that's one sentence long, um, which most folks don't know. So Title IX was enacted in 1972 under President Nixon. And again, it's a one sentence law. And what it says, I'm just going to say it because it's shortened and succinct. No person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. And that's it. And from that one sentence is a pretty big body of law, uh, over 40 years of of litigation and cases uh, and federal guidance and programs that have been monitored at the K-12 and collegiate level, all under that one sentence. Um, The Federal Office of Civil Rights, who most of the school districts uh, we work with and the colleges and certainly um, community colleges as well, are very familiar with, they enforce Title IX. Good
0: old OCR.
1: Yeah, everyone's favorite, I'm sure. Um, So they enforce Title IX, and they've also issued a lot of guidance over the years on what that one sentence means and what they think it means. Um, Some would even say they've expanded the rights under Title IX through their guidance letters.
0: And, And I want to ask both of you about it today. I won't go here now, but it seems like, and this isn't necessarily unusual. I think we're seeing it in a range of federal Federal legal areas, but it feels like between administration to administration, we're giving some pull and push as to scope of of federal rights versus and guidance under federal rights. And I know that you two are, are well uh, up to speed on kind of the changing landscape there. So I really want to ask you guys about that because I it does seem like there was a series of letters over the last ten years that were taking a broader, broader, broader view. Unclear to me, and I hope to know from you two today, where we are today in light of those guidance letters that may, may no longer be on the books versus new guidance, et cetera.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So and, and I, let's talk about that. But Title IX has really two components, and we'll probably talk more about this. It has um, any kind of discrimination on the basis of sex is what it's about. But there's really the sex discrimination and harassment and sexual violence component of Title IX And then there's the sex equity and sports component of Title IX. And the sex equity and sports is really a separate issue. So the guidance that I want to talk to you about and that I think you're referring to really impacts the sexual violence, sexual harassment part of Title IX, not the sports equity piece of Title IX. So I just want to make sure that's clear. But over the years, starting I think in about 2001, there have been about four or five seminal guidance documents that the OCR has put out. And they've either been guidance documents or what the OCR likes to call dear colleague letters. And you've probably seen those before. Um, And those are what we relied on, what our clients relied on in dealing with Title IX issues. And then under the current administration in the White House and the current Secretary of Education, that guidance was pretty drastically changed in in the fall of 2017. Two of the main um, guidance documents on sexual harassment and sexual violence were rescinded by the department. And Betsy DeVos put out new guidance, interim guidance, um, in September of 2017 that really pulled back on a lot of the prior guidance and sort of shrunk, at least most people would consider shrunk, some of the protections and and guidance that was out there for schools to look at when dealing with Title IX issues. To and, you, to oh. your,
0: sorry, Michelle, I will interrupt. <laughs> I tend to do that. Ask my kids. Um it, what are some of the main – are there some some real, like, critical elements that we would say with that change that, that jump out to you? What are some of the key issues in the prior guidance letters that perhaps are now a different landscape than they were a year and a half ago, two years ago?
1: Yeah. And, Stephanie, I want you to jump in as well. But yeah. the one thing I would point to, I guess, that's a difference is interim measures are something we talk about in Title IX, and those are measures that um, – a school puts in place for an alleged victim before they've even conducted or finished the investigation, made any findings or determinations, Title IX requires you put interim measures in place. And it always focused on the victim or the alleged victim, not the respondent. When the guidance documents were pulled and then DeVos put out a new guidance letter, um, it specifically said that these interim measures must be applied to both the complainant or victim and the respondent so we can't now just worry about making sure the respond- or the complainant or the victim is getting you know protections and whatever while the process is going forward we also have to make sure that the respondent is getting some interim measures and is not being unfairly impacted before there's been a determination that they've engaged in any misconduct
0: I, I do want to ask at some point in, uh, about the maybe the jurisdictional scope or view of kind of how far out uh, they expect our school districts to, to react when it comes to allegations in this field because I feel like I've heard maybe there's a little change there too. But, but before we get there, Stephanie, how does Title IX imply in the K 12 setting?
2: Um, so it, it does. It applies in the k twelve setting, even though most of the media attention we get around it is at is at the college level. And a lot of the interim guidance, um, the the new interim, the the current interim guidance that's in place and the dear colleague letters that were recently rescinded, they tend to focus on higher ed, even though they do actually apply to k twelve. So there can be a lot of confusion with that. So when we're applying, Title IX and the guidance that we have from the Office for Civil Rights to a K-12 setting, it's really important that we remember that we're dealing with minors and other obligations are going to be triggered under the Ed Code and with regard to um, certain reporting obligations.
0: Well, it's one of the things that Michelle just mentioned on interim measures, Stephanie. Mm -hmm. How do we now, what's, what's the approach to applying an interim measure where we have a student who we believe has committed sexual harassment and which in the normal course of things, and I'm saying general sexual harassment as opposed to sexual assault or violence, right. which would equate to harassment, but at a more significant degree. What are we, What is the expectation from the feds under their new guidance on an interim measure when, say, within the first two or three days of a report of sexual harassment, we're imposing a two, three, four, five days suspension and possibly an expulsion for the student.
2: So under the new guidance, what the interim measures can be has not changed. What has changed, as Michelle said, is that there's um, more of an evaluation being done as to what's equitable for the complainant and the respondent. So for example, under... The Obama guidance, um, if we had a complainant and a respondent that were in the same class um, prior to investigating, we would almost automatically remove the respondent from that situation or separate the two to the detriment of the respondent. The new guidance is saying, hold on a second. Um, let's make sure we're doing this fairly and consider, really consider the rights of the respondent um, and, any, and any detrimental impact that would be affecting the respondent before an investigation has, has taken place.
0: So we've got a scenario where there's alleged sexual harassment, and it's not as simple as school administrator witnessed it occurring, and so it's kind of investigation open, investigation shut. Mm-hmm allegations of of harassment, which may take a couple days or a week or two weeks to sort out. And I do want to know from you guys, how does the discipline investigation overlap and interact with what would be a Title IX investigation? But it would be in that second scenario, Stephanie, that we're saying, okay, we've got to sort through the facts here, decide what's happened, that we're going to do this balance, this equitable implementation of interim measures. Is that, is that what, Am I understanding that right?
2: Yeah, I think you're understanding that right. So um, we would look at maybe providing counseling services to the student who complained. Um, depending on what the facts are, uh, school administrators would need to decide if it warrants a suspension. And I know we keep talking about it in the student-on-student context, but this could be a student complaining about an employee as well or an employee complaining about an employee for that matter though we typically don't talk about Title IX in that situation as, as often. Um, but the, the school administrator is going to need to evaluate those facts and decide if you're removing the student from the school site, placing an employee on on leave, or what's appropriate under the certain situation.
0: Michelle, with that kind of framework for the, the K-12 setting and how this apply, what's this about potential new regulations in, in the Title IX arena?
1: Yeah, so when the old guidance, the Obama, Obama guidance was pulled back, uh, there was interim guidance put in place, and it said at that time that the, they would be promulgating official regulations. And so since then, draft regulations have been circulated, and uh, there's, there's been public hearings, and they've been revised. They're still pending as proposed draft regulations. Um, most of us that work in this area have had a chance to review them and sort of digest them. They make pretty sweeping changes even beyond what the interim guidance from fall of 2017 did to really change the landscape. And again, with a focus on providing as much due process as possible to respondents in these cases um, and, and making sure that we are not unfairly judging or impacting respondents before there's been a determination made um, that they've engaged in any misconduct. And then even when there has been a determination made that they've engaged in misconduct, providing them expanded due process rights. So those regulations are out there. They're pending. Most folks think that they will be finalized sometime within the next few months. And then once they're finalized, it'll be the new landscape under which we work.
0: When's the last time? That the regs were revised significantly for Title IX?
1: We've we've never had um, comprehensive Title IX regulations before. It's always just been through OCR guidance, which has been part of the problem. Some people have thought OCR is really overreached because they don't have the power to promulgate rules and regulations under just their guidance letters and documents.
0: Right. And I'm think I guess i there the Title IX regs that have existed tend to be have focus on the sports side, right? Is exactly. Okay. Right. Yeah. Okay.
2: Can I just add really quick to what Michelle was saying?
0: Yes, yes, please.
2: Um, so under the new regs as well, there there is really an emphasis on when liability for a district would be triggered. Um, and it's pulling it back so that there is only going to be liability if you can prove deliberate indifference to address the situation on the district's part. So under the former guidance, we had what's known as a responsible employee. And what the guidance was saying, um, if you had an employee who is either responsible or could address student misconduct, um, has been uh, designated as a responsible employee or someone a student could reasonably believe would have the authority to address student misconduct. You are a a responsible employee, um, and if you are aware of something that could potentially be a Title IX violation, like sexual harassment, that constitutes as notice for the district. Under the proposed regulations, it would be pulling that back so that districts would only be liable if there was actual knowledge.
0: So let's unpack that a little bit. Um, I've, I've got my litigator hat on. As I'm as I'm thinking through what you just said. So so in terms of OCR regulations, they provide they provide a, a scope of authority which can be turned to in litigation, but often they're most relevant when OCR is investigating whether or not they're gonna require corrective measures by a school district, right?
1: Correct. Exactly. I think that's the right way to say that.
0: So this the, the notion of deliberate indifference and notice Am I remembering correctly that that has been, in terms of financial liability for damages in a Title IX lawsuit, that that is the standard for monetary liability under Franklin and Gerber and some of these other cases? And so, am I hearing you to say that now OCR is saying even for them to require corrective measures, they're going to require that standard to be met?
2: That appears to be what they're saying through the proposed regulations.
0: Interesting. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: And, and so, uh, you know, depending on which
1: side you're on, they're either loosening the reins or tightening the reins, right. and it, it will be a higher standard of what you have to show, um, it, you know, depending on which side you're on. And so the deliberate indifference different standard is one that litigators are used to because that's right. the standard that applies. And a lot of these kinds of cases, not just Title IX, right, um, but it hasn't been used by the OCR before, and now it will be.
0: That's interesting. Um, how does this, uh, Stephanie, you mentioned responsible person, but Michelle... Title IX coordinator, a term we hear all the time, and and what's the difference between a Title IX coordinator and a responsible person?
1: That's a good question. There there are two totally different um, roles, although a Title IX coordinator is also a responsible uh, employee. So a Title IX coordinator, all um, education agencies that need to comply with Title IX, which is any educational agency that receives federal funds, Um, including any private schools that receive federal funds, they have to designate a Title IX coordinator. And that person is responsible for basically coordinating all the Title IX efforts for that agency. That includes um, intake on complaints. It includes dealing with interim measures. It includes overseeing and or conducting investigations or liaising with outside investigators It includes um, making the remedies when uh, there's been a determination made and any follow-up and training and all that sort of thing. So they really coordinate the Title IX efforts. Um, A lot of Title IX coordinators will do a lot of investigation themselves and it depends largely on the size of the education agency. We work with some Title IX coordinators for for big school districts and they don't do any investigations on their own. They're just coordinating the investigations of others either in-house or outhouse. Um, and depending on the uh, allegations that are made, oftentimes an outside investigator will be used in Title IX cases almost always if there's a, an allegation of actual sexual violence or sexual assault. Lower level sort of sex discrimination or harassment is often handled in-house, just depends on the allegations. And then the the responsible person is a term of art that's used by OCR, to. and Stephanie just gave us the definition, and it really apply, applies broadly to a lot of people at a school or school district um, or community college, anyone basically that either has the authority to deal with these Title IX claims or who the student reasonably thinks does. So when you think about it, the elementary uh, setting, for instance, imagine a fifth grade student that's been subject to sexual harassment and she, you know, the school secretary is her go-to person when she feels sick, needs a nurse, has to leave her doctor's appointment or anything else, if that's the person she thinks can deal with her Title IX claim and sexual harassment, that person is a, a responsible employee. So it's a really broad definition, and it's really important that at least under the current guidance as it stands now, Because this responsible employee can create liability that everyone know when they're a responsible employee that they receive training on what that means. And the key thing it means is if a responsible employee gets information from a student that there's been an incident, then that triggers their requirement that they report it to the Title IX coordinator.
0: Yeah. Uh, Stephanie, um, and uh, there's all types of roads that I'm going to be careful not to lead us down, but I am curious um, isn't hasn't there been in recent years some, some parallel state law education code provisions on Title IX coordinator? That's that's one question I have, and maybe I'm totally misremembering that. And and second, you know, it, you you described a few minutes ago this the, the potential changing landscape under the regs when it comes to OCR's authority to impose corrective measures. Can you talk about, to the extent a Title IX complaint, an investigation, may very well overlap a UCP investigation under California law, whether or not we might anticipate the CDE, under state law, taking a more aggressive view at corrective measures through a UCP appeal, if and when the federal regulations limit OCR's authority to impose corrective measures?
2: Yeah so to answer your first question I think what you might be referring to is SB 1375 um, which went into effect maybe two years ago I want to say so that at the state level is just requiring that on every school district website and at each specific school website information about who your Title IX coordinator is, how to file a complaint, and what the processes are um, is clearly posted in a really easy place to to find that information. Got it. Regarding the overlap with Title IX complaints and our UCP complaints, or complaints that are filed under our uniform complaint procedures, there is a ton of overlap. Um, So, for example, if we have a student complaint that comes in alleging uh, they've been subjected to sexual harassment by another student in California at our K-12 grades, we're going to be following the uniform complaint procedures, which most schools have as board policy and administrative regulation 1312.3 to carry out the investigation process you'll want to do this while keeping all these concepts of Title IX in place like implementing how to implement interim measures when at the conclusion of a UCP investigation um, complainants and respondents are informed of what their appeal rights are which may vary a little bit depending on the specific district that they're in but it, it will include a right for the complainant to appeal the district's findings to um, CDE, the California Department of Ed. And what I think we're already seeing is that CDE has been very active um, in the complaints that they're receiving that are, that are being appealed and have been, pretty, have been pretty aggressive in the last year or so.
0: Because I mean, because our UCP as part of the laws we're required to measure compliance with includes federal laws like Title IX, right?
1: Exactly. Right.
0: So just as a practical pointer from both of you, do you see any problem with with a complaint that, that fits into Title IX, which would probably be raised, Stephanie, you raised uh, BP and AR 1312.3, but there's also the CSBA model sexual harassment policy, 5145.7, you see anything wrong with a complaint that falls under the sexual harassment complaint process but then is naturally investigated through the ucp that when issuing the findings and decision letter that it's identified as both your ucp findings and decision letter as well as that which is required for title nine
2: yeah i think you can combine the two processes and the the sexual harassment policy that you mentioned at uh, the five one four five point seven. 5.7 CSBA's model policies for sexual harassment are kicking that investigation process under the UCP. So it it should be a pretty streamlined approach.
1: And so we, uh, you know, I think that's one of the issues our clients uh, struggle with the most is, we get a complaint in, and it's, and it often doesn't come in as I'm making a Title IX complaint. It's a complaint that, for instance, there was a sexual assault, you know, after a high school basketball game, and um, so oftentimes administrators are dealing with it as. Um, a student discipline matter and they're investigating it and taking all the steps they need to. And they sort of forget that there's this Title IX component or even a sexual harassment component that both apply. So we often get questions about we don't know which policy to follow. We don't know if we're doing the right thing. Does one cover the other? And there's there's no set answer. And Stephanie, jump in if you disagree under the current um, Title IX guidance. But what we usually advise is, you know, you pick the, the policy or the process that applies. So in the case of a student expulsion, you would follow your student expulsion policies and investigation, etc. And, and depending on how the complaint or claim comes in, you may also have a UCP. But you may never have a UCP issue through a student um, expulsion issue, if you're following me. And as long as you've still abided by everything that Title IX requires, you're covered. At least that's always been our position. In other words, if you've done the interim measures, you've taken the corrective action, there's been a prompt and thorough investigation, all of the things that are required under Title IX through the student discipline process, that's okay.
0: Which I think that's a really helpful point for our districts. It's a helpful point for me because, you know, every, every, every year you kind of got to refresh and, and think about that. But so I would assume at the at the end of a scenario like that, where there hasn't been a formal sexual harassment complaint lodged, let alone a formal UCP lodged, but we've done everything once on notice of the alleged harassment to do interim measures to take corrective action, including some form of discipline, assuming justified after a thorough and prompt investigation. What's the recommendation for how a school district should memorialize having taken those steps so that when six months down the road, someone turns around and says, hey, you only disciplined. You didn't. You didn't. You didn't treat my that allegation as a formal complaint. What do we recommend for our districts in terms of documentation and memorializing steps so that we can we can verify that in fact no, we were fully compliant with Title Nine. Then we did everything that's expected to us under the law.
1: I'll tell you what I do, and then, Stephanie, please add what your practice is, too. I make sure that during that process, so just staying with your hypothetical, they're keeping the alleged victims, uh, victim and victim's family up to speed the whole time, especially with regard to interim measures, because that's not something that school administrators will usually think of when they're dealing with student uh, suspension and expulsion. Wait, hold on. I can't tell another parent what I'm doing with a kid's discipline, can I? Actually, you can, but I haven't gotten there yet, right. Sloan. Okay. So okay. we want to we want to we want to make interim measures available. Of course, now you we've just said earlier that we have to make sure that the respondent is not he that his you know interim measures are taken into account also. So they have to document that, put it in writing, put it in an email, and in the end, to comply under Title IX, the complainant or victim is entitled to know the outcome, to know what the remedy was. So this is one area where normally we would say, oh, you don't tell other students that a student's been expelled. Under Title IX, they are entitled to know that the other student was expelled. And Title IX guidance specifically says that in these areas, FERPA is essentially waived so that you can tell the other student what the ultimate outcome is. Stephanie, have you given different advice or the same advice?
2: Yeah, I, I give the same advice. Um, I think I narrow it a little bit more that they're specifically what you're talking about as to that FERPA doesn't apply, um, that's true to the extent that the remedy directly impacts the complainant, which I think is where you were going with that when you talked about they're entitled to know that the other student was expelled. And I I like to remind the clients that I work with of the underlying reason behind that. And I think the the concept is that until the complainant knows that they're not going to be running into the person who sexually harassed or violated them on campus, um, they can't come to school without that fear or anxiety that essentially is preventing them from being able to to go to class and to succeed and to play sports and to... Um, to equally benefit from those educational opportunities. And I think when you think about it in that sense, it it makes sense why there's this narrow carve out where where FERPA wouldn't apply. And I would just add that when we see schools following their disciplinary procedures to address um, things that would fall under Title IX, I think this is the step, the biggest step that we see them forget is at the end of these disciplinary procedures providing notice um, to the complainants of, of the outcome.
0: You're, you're making me think of two things. One is this is obviously focused on Title IX, uh, driven by sex-based discrimination harassment, but that same type of rule would equally apply in the Title VI setting if we were doing an investigation as to racial or eth- ethnicity-based harassment. Um, and and or discrimination. I mean, it's that same. The concept, at least as I've understood it from OCR over the years, would apply equally in that context. But then the other thing I'm thinking of is that it seems like where I've seen that guidance has been in some of these these letters, which maybe maybe some of the ones that have been rescinded. I don't, is, is there, I don't know if I've ever seen like a an actual, there's not a regulation on point. I feel like it's driven by the guidance letters, including some of the more recent ones that have been rescinded. I'm with, I agree with both of you two that that's the appropriate rule, but I do wonder with all the rescission and revising and changing, you know, if the new viewpoint, if the new regs at all is inconsistent with the concept that's been the norm for so long now that you do have the ability to inform the victim of the corrective measures taken as to the harasser.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm I'm not I haven't been following the guidance letters with regard to Title Six, so I can't say whether those are still in place or not. The two that were withdrawn, one at least specifically dealt with sexual violence uh, solely, but but the new regulations um, also do have specific provisions that speak to FERPA and a FERPA waiver um, in these situations. So again, if those regulations are passed like they're currently like they're currently drafted, then we're going to have really clear regulatory language.
0: So Stephanie, I another way I can deal with this, right, is I can just have law enforcement investigate it and not worry about anything as a district, right?
2: That would be nice, um, but that's not the case. <laughs> so, um, as much as you know, many of our administrators did not get into their areas of practice um, to do these types of investigations if the police are involved, you can briefly delay your own investigation so that they can go in there. A lot of times they want to get the first crack at the parties and have the, do their initial interviews, gather whatever evidence they may be needed to gather. But after um, a reasonable delay, and we always encourage our clients to closely work together and cooperate with, with law enforcement, schools do need to do their own investigations. And the reason for that is law enforcement is investigating whether a crime has occurred at the school site um, under a much lower standard of evidence they're looking to see whether a student's educational environment was negatively impacted because of some conduct so we're looking at two different things and we're using a much lower threshold. So we're working under the preponderance of the evidence standard or what a lot of people like to refer to as more likely than not. Um, so that's why it's in, it's important. We can't wait for law enforcement to complete their investigation. and We can't solely rely on that investigation. One thing that I do like um, when it is possible is that if we have a copy of an investigation report that a police officer has done we can use some of the those statements or facts gathered during our investigation process
0: that area to me seems to be the one that is one of the toughest areas for our clients to work through every year some districts have great relationships with their law enforcement partners and this whole thing is seamless there's other places throughout the state where unfortunately our law enforcement partners don't understand that independent separate obligation and and if we're talking student discipline a timeline where the clock is ticking um, to move forward and and i've it seems like several times a year i'll get a call where sheriff's department or local pd is is upset with um, their school district partners for having proceeded and are scolding them for for doing their own their own approach even having waited already a week or two to move and so I, I think it, what you're saying Stephanie rings true trying to have even you know have that worked out in, in advance knowing a relationship with your law enforcement partners as to how that's going to play out and how you're going to coordinate I didn't, I wouldn't even be surprised if some districts have some language in it with their MOUs, with the their SROs and others but it seems to always come up a couple times a year.
2: Yeah, and the Office for Civil Rights has actually put out a, a sample MOU um, that districts can consider adopting for the purpose of figuring out how they're going to work with law enforcement through these kinds of situations.
1: And what I was going to add is, I think you know this is this is not unique to Title IX. Whenever there's an issue that involves law enforcement, it's tricky. On who does what investigation first and how much cooperation you're going to get. And just like you said, Sloan, I have some districts that have a great relationship. We get the police report. We get information. We're kept up updated. And I have some districts that have local police agencies that basically keep them in the dark, won't share information, won't even share reports, and that makes it much more difficult. Right. Yeah.
0: Stephanie, how does, you know, with your community college uh, district practice group leader hat on and, and knowing that you also... Um, engage with with other uh, secondary institutions like uh, univ- post secondary institutions like university level and otherwise. How does how is it different? What are the different rules for higher ed under Title IX compared to our K twelve clients?
2: Yeah, so in higher ed, um, the Violence Against Women's Act is going to apply the university's specific policies are going to need to be followed during the investigation process, um, which typically will lay out very detailed procedures for how investigations are conducted, how the results of those investigations are shared, and any subsequent student discipline. And the the new proposed um, regulations, depending on what is actually finalized, can really affect this process at the higher um, ed level there's currently some specific proposals for the ability uh, for regarding hearings and the ability to to cross-examine witnesses so it can have it can they can be significantly impacted Um, at the community college district level we have title five that has its own processes for investigating discrimination complaints, including sexual harassment or Title IX complaints, that that also need to be followed and have and have different timelines.
0: Well, Michelle, let's let's assume that um, we may or may not have complied with the law, but how is Title IX ultimately enforced in relation to our school district, community college district, and other clients?
1: So there's a few different ways. Um, one is. You know, anyone can file a UCP complaint with their with the local school district or educational agency, and it will go through that process, and that has an appeal right to the CDE, as you mentioned. Someone can also just go directly to OCR and file a complaint with OCR, and then they'll do their own investigation, um, and they have teeth in their investigation and, and can impose remedies and that sort of thing on the district and most districts if you've ever worked with one that's had an OCR complaint it's not a fun process something to be avoided if at all possible but ultimately if a person isn't satisfied with either of those they can file a lawsuit under title nine in federal court and the interesting thing about title nine and what really sets it apart from um, title you know title seven for instance for employees and some of the other federal statutes is there's no exhaustion requirement first, so you can literally go directly to federal court and file a Title IX complaint if you want to, um, without having filed a complaint with OCR or anyone else first, and that's important, and we haven't talked about this yet, but did you know that Title Nine also applies equally to employees? No, it doesn't. <laughs> it actually does. So and and yeah. no one thinks about that or talks about it, but it, it applies to employees too, who work for educational agencies. So and and if an employee is subject to um, sex-based discrimination, again it has to be sex based, they really have the option of do I want to go Title Seven route, which is the federal, you know, right. anti-discrimination law, do I want to go state FIHA route, right. or do I want to go Title IX route? And I would say it tends to happen much more often under FIHA and Title Seven, but it can happen under Title Nine. and I think sometimes when it does, it's because perhaps there hasn't been um, exhaustion or someone's missed the timeline for that, right? and so they want to go directly forward with the Title Nine lawsuit.
0: Yeah, every once in a while I see a, an employment discrimination complaint in which the Title IX claim is thrown in there. Yeah. But I do think the norm would be the norm would be, for the most part, and I think a lot of times because employees don't even know, right? That's that's the point, I think, of your point, that it's not many employees know, and some school districts don't even know that there's language that employees implies to employees. Right. So it just makes sense to file with the EEOC or DFEH and then proceed with your FIHA and Title Seven claims. But, yeah, that's an interesting point.
1: And it seems to us, and now I haven't done exhaustive research, but it seems to us that when there is a claim that's filed under both, the courts will process it, is when it turns to federal litigation under Title Seven.
0: Yeah, I think McDonnell, the McDonnell-Douglas burden shifting and all that probably is the, what's being applied right across the, across the board. I have a couple more questions before there's some, some kind of wrap-up things. This is very interesting, and, and I thank both of you for your, your expertise and these the helpful pointers you guys are uh, elucidating on. One is... The jurisdictional piece. I feel like I've heard, and I don't know this for certain, but was there a change in the guidance or the proposed regs as to the scope or the expectations for school districts on the scope of their responsibility for, for activities occurring, say, off school grounds as opposed to on school grounds or in relation to a school activity?
1: Yeah. So under the, again, under the current guidance and what we've always advised our clients is if, if something happens off campus at a party, spring break, even during summer, you have a potential Title IX issue you need to deal with. The new regs seem to be pulling back on that also. And they're saying that Title IX is going to be limited to only conduct which has occurred at school or during a school program or activity. So they are really putting box a box and limits around when there's Title IX jurisdiction. That being said, that doesn't mean that if there's an issue that happens over somewhere, somewhere not involving school, but it impacts someone at school, that the school doesn't have a duty to still deal with that. They do, because then there's an impact at the school. But that's what the change in the regs are. And interestingly enough, too, we were just talking about this this weekend at an event I attended. Apparently, OCR has always had the, or, or always taken the position that if there is, Something that occurs um, that's even a school-sponsored event, but it's outside the United States, that they don't take jurisdiction over that either. For instance, let's say at the higher ed level, you've got kids that are doing a study abroad, but they attend UCLA, but they're studying abroad for the semester and they're in Italy. Apparently, OCR has taken the position that that's outside the jurisdiction because it's not occurring within the United States.
0: Interesting. Also, probably a terrible pain to try to investigate, right, if you're you're OCR, if it's...
1: Probably. But I mean, if I have to investigate a Title IX claim, I might as well do one in Italy. <laughs> right, right.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the point you make and I guess in some ways, because even the prior guidance said, look, something happens off school grounds. You may not have the ability to discipline the student for that activity. But if, say if it's an alleged sexual assault, if then that that perpetrator is circulating at school, text and emails about that event and creating the hostile environment at school, that's where you still have jurisdiction to address it and should, must address it from a Title IX perspective. So I think it seems like there is a clear, more direct delineation from Title from OCR or the proposed regulations, I mean, to, to say this isn't your obligation, but I think we'll have to be very careful of our clients to make sure, no, hold on, thats a that's a more bright line rule, but it doesn't Cease your obligation to make sure there isn't an ongoing harassing environment existing on campus that may track back to that initial first instance.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that's the right way of looking at it. And I think, again, the the, the regs and the whole movement right now from this administration is to really give additional protections to respondents and to sort of limit I, what I, I would say, limit Title IX rights. But I think schools will need to be careful that oftentimes something does happen off campus, even during the summer, but when it comes onto campus and if it's a problem and it's impacting that victim and her ability, and I'm saying the word her, her ability to access education and attend programs or participate in class or whatever, you're still going to have a Title IX issue that you have to deal with
2: i just want to add to that one thing we haven't talked about um in addition to the proposed regs and the current guidance that we do have in place we also are in living in this like political climate with the whole me too movement so one thing that we're we're seeing we're talking to our clients about jurisdiction and what those limits might be but in certain cases sometimes depending on what's going on in their community we've seen schools more willing to take a, a risk of overreaching on jurisdiction in efforts to address some some of these some of these issues
0: that that's an interesting point it goes to before you go I have some wrap up questions for you but just real quickly for both of you uh, as you look ahead because I want to ask you about what resources exist for districts in this area and, and also talk about Lazana Smith's REACT training. But what, what, is, what do you guys see as the top two or three trends, both in terms of what our districts are seeing, maybe the types of Title IX issues that are arising, and where you think these new regs are going to take us if we were to project out for the, the, the coming 1920 uh, school year?
1: Uh, I'll, I'll start only because I've had a, and again, we're talking a lot about student-on-student harassment and sexual violence. It just as often comes up with an adult and a student, and whether that's higher ed or even at the K-12 level. level. Um, and, and those, of course, are, you deal with those as employee discipline once you're done with your investigation and everything else. But I guess on the student discipline piece, I am seeing a lot of sexual harassment in cases where I think it probably wouldn't have been brought to light before, because I think there is more awareness out there and there is more of a a movement. You know, California now requires affirmative consent um, for sex and that's a change in the law and that applies to um, community colleges. And so I think that's changed the landscape. How much the new proposed regulations will change how we deal with all of this? Again, my feeling at this point is that it's gonna make very significant changes to the post-secondary level I don't know that the changes at the K-12 level are going to be as impactful as they will at the, at the collegiate level. At least that's my, my impression. What about you, Stephanie?
2: Yeah, I think there's a big emphasis on due process, and I think the new regulations are going to lead to more transparency every step of the way. Um, I think they're also going to give districts more flexibility and how they address um, Title IX issues that are brought before them. Just as a as a quick example, because I know we're wrapping up here, under some of the old guidance, resolving a complaint informally or mediating a complaint um, when it had to do with a sexual assault was off limits where, and there was a, a big emphasis on having to move forward through the investigation process. Under the new regulations, I think their districts are going to have a little more flexibility in figuring out what what makes sense under the circumstances, and really listening to what the complainant is looking for 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 remedies and determining how to best proceed from there.
0: That's interesting. I just had a case in the last month or so where a parent came forward, very upset, alleging there was consensual relations between two uh, two students. Parent came forward. Um, you know, I'm very upset about it, but also said, well, but I don't, don't discipline. We don't want to ruin, don't want to ruin this other student's, you know, matriculation through high school. So, but I can see in a scenario like that, the, the resolution or middle ground type approach, that might be the type of scenario where you, you get people together and circle the wagons and find, find an outcome that works for everyone. So resources that you you two would recommend to our clients and then please, uh, for either of you, um, a good chance to talk about our REACT training.
1: I think one of the easiest way, places to go for resources is just to go to the Lozano-Smith website. We've put together an entire Title IX toolkit. We did a big part of it in conjunction with AXA. Last year, um, we've got resources that apply to community college level and K 12 level. We've got checklists that people can use when they're dealing with Title IX issues. Stephanie and I have done multiple webinars that are available. Um, we've put out news articles. We've put out CNBs uh, to our clients. And so all of that's available on our website and it's a great spot to go to get updated information and keep updated. And also it's got, like I said, some checklists and some, some helpful um, things like that too. The OCR website also has a ton of information on it if, you, if, if folks want to go there and check that out. Um, but I think one thing is to keep in mind uh, ongoing training. And I'm hoping Stephanie will talk about our REACT training, which is something Stephanie and I put together. She really is the, is the brains behind it and created the react acronym that we use with all of our clients when they're dealing with title 9 issues.
2: Yeah, and I think the react training is a is a really great training because just as we sit here today and talk, we've talked about Title IX, we've talked about all the overlaps of the state laws at the K-12 level and the community college level. Um, and with all these different bodies of laws and different forms of guidance, it can get really confusing as to where to start. And through we REACT, while we do mention the different laws, what it's really focused on is the overall process and what to do when a complaint comes in. And we, we walk you through the process using the acronym REACT um, so that you know each step of the way, when to implement interim measures, what your next step is, and how to really handle um, some challenging but common situations that come up when you're investigating these these types of issues.
0: Thanks, Stephanie. And thank you, Michelle. This has been a great conversation. Uh, You two are such assets to our clients and the firm um, in this area and others. Um, Very insightful and helpful discussion. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Please feel free to check out our other podcast at lozanosmith.com forward slash podcast. You'll find all of our podcasts there, including resources that relate to this and other subjects we've covered. And subscribe so you don't miss any of these. Uh, Thanks again, guys. And uh, we'll talk to you next time.
2: Thank you. Thanks, guys.
0: If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the host of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice we recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard.